0: You know what evil lurks in the hearts of men, for you have seen that evil in your own heart. Every man pays the price for redemption. This is yours. I'm not looking for redemption. You have no
1: choice. You will be redeemed, because I will teach you to use your black shadow to fight evil. Junk food dinner
2: 593. It's 30s Pulp Heroes week, junkies. First. A detective faces down a mutant mafia in Dick Tracy. Next, with Howard Hughes' tech, a pilot becomes the Rocketeer. Finally, an opium kingpin becomes a psychic superhero in The Shadow.
3: Here we go, here we go, baby we go, we go. We go. We go. We go.
4: Dinner episode 593 this is the podcast where each week we scour the internet video stores and cable television searching for the most outrageous and interesting cult films in Ohio I am Kevin Moss and I'm joined by my California co-host Parker Bowman in the 559 and Sean Byron in LA this week we look at a trio of big budget 1990s movies about pulp heroes of the 1930s starting with Dick Tracy from 1990 the Rocketeer from 1991 and the Shadow from 1994 but first gentlemen are you doing this week feeling pulpy, feeling nuwari, feeling uh, like you want to drive around in one of those sweet old-fashioned 1930s automobiles?
5: I do. I do. I've been calling ladies dames all week long. <laughs>
4: mm-hmm.
5: It's uh it was a wonderful time. Just for slang, I guess. Like maybe like the slang hmm. in the cars were like the only good part of that time, but <laughs> but it's wonderful nonetheless for those two things. Well, oh, and the cool
6: suits that everybody was wearing around town. I that that was kind of cool back then.
4: <laughs> yeah. yeah. The architecture was pretty sweet. Yeah, that architecture was pretty good.
5: And the, the fact bi- that like you could put on a bandana and your nose would grow really big. I
6: liked
4: oh, that. Yeah.
5: <laughs> and and the billboards
6: for cigarettes were
5: out of control back then. <laughs> yeah. The cigarettes themselves were
6: out
4: of control. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's funny we, could, we we kind of thought about this theme show because we realized there was this trend in the 90s of doing these kind of throwbacks to like the, the pulp and noir and, uh, you know, kind of detective stories of the 1930s. And I, I don't, what do you attribute that to? You think it was just aging producers being like, ah, I want to make a picture like they did when I was a boy. <laughs> I think that was a lot of it.
5: And also, the fact that Batman made $17 billion was a lot of it.
4: Yeah, I
6: I think Batman was probably the biggest factor for these three movies. But I do think that there is a thing where it's like, I feel like culture might move in these like 30 year cycles, at least for me. Like, I'm currently feeling like I'm most interested in stuff from like 30 years ago, you know, like the early 90s. And in the early 90s, coincidentally, I was into things that were like 60 years before that. So. Um, I don't know if if that's just me and, and my weirdness or or what, but I feel like well, this is a thing.
4: Yeah, I feel like there was kind of a throwback to that, you know, like even movies that weren't necessarily like noir or pulpy, like you know, you had stuff like A League of Their Own. I feel like was you know movies you could go see with your grandma and she could tell you about her her time.
5: <laughs> yeah, I think even Tales from the Crypt kind of falls into this a little bit. Like, yeah, I mean, that was a little bit later in the in time, but like. Yeah, a lot of those like pulpy things were coming back uh, at this time. Like Art Deco was kind of coming back at the time. Pulpiness mm-hmm. was coming back at the time. Fedoras Gar- were back.
4: Art Garfunkel was coming back at the time. <laughs> <laughs> Morris Day was coming back at the time.
5: Art Garfunkel has
4: always been a factor. Kevin Moss. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, absolutely. Another one we could have put on this list would be the Phantom, because that yeah. obviously, much like Dick Tracy, came from a a serialized comic strip from the the time but i feel like the rocketeer even though it's you know not based on a actual character from the time period it's obviously set in that period i feel like it fits in a little bit better with these other two
6: yeah and the character is you know it's it's a definite homage to those kinds of characters it's not just that it's set in the 30s but this is like a pulp action hero kind of a guy you know
4: absolutely well, oh, cool. Well, I look forward to getting into those. Uh, but before we do that, uh, how was you guys' week? Been anything uh, exciting going on? See any any uh, movies that weren't nineteen thirties pulp dramas?
6: I saw a few movies. I, I also went to the Philharmonic. Uh, I, I can state that I've now left my house for something, so that was cool. pretty exciting. This past week, got to see some uh, classical music performed by the LA Philharmonic, so that, that was really nice. But movie wise, yeah, saw a bunch of stuff. Saw um a few things that i was not impressed with that i had never seen before i saw the invisible man from 2020 didn't did not really love it 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 felt like this weird kind of superhero take on the invisible man did did you guys get into that yet the elizabeth moss one Mm
4: -hmm. well she's my cousin so i gotta you know keep with (laughs) him and keep it close to the vest but i yeah i didn't love it either but i didn't hate i actually saw that i think that was the last movie I saw in the theater before uh, COVID happened. Um, and yeah, I didn't I didn't love it, but I didn't hate it either. I know Parker hated it. I do hate it.
5: I think if you have an invisible man, he has to be invisible 100 percent of the time. That's like the whole point of him. Maybe like having a werewolf and like he can just to be a werewolf all day. No, it's got to be the full moon.
6: Yeah, and it's, I mean, I I know that they're trying to, like, root it in, you know, actual, maybe, like, semi-plausible technology or whatever, but it just, it comes off hokey. Just, yeah, just give me, like, a a cursed ring or something, you know what I mean? Like, make it supernatural. I don't know. I also saw...
4: Wait, Hold on, real quick, before you change subjects. Um, You know what I just recently discovered is the 1950s Invisible Man TV series, H.G. Wells' The Invisible Man. Have you ever seen this?
6: No, I haven't, but mm-hmm. I'm very interested.
4: It's on IMDb, like whatever their streaming service is, which is free. But uh, yeah, if you like, you know, the uh, Claude Rains Invisible Man, and uh, you know, 1950s television, I-, I think it's worth checking out.
6: Yeah, I-, I would totally check that out. That sounds good to me. I, I think I was mentioning a couple weeks ago that I had seen that. Um, is it called, The the Return of the Invisible Man, the one with Vincent Price, which yeah. was okay. Like, I'm always craving Invisible Man content. I, I think it's such an interesting, um, you know, potential character, but sometimes, that you know, it doesn't always work out. Um, you know, I also saw Flatliners from oh, yeah. uh, 1990. Didn't love it. Kind of lame, I thought. Um, saw Nightbreed for the first time. Whoa. And probably I saw the wrong cut. I don't know, because I thought it was, like, pretty bad I, I mean there were things to, to love about it i mean it was very ambitious i love that there so many different creatures in it or whatever but like a lot of them look kind of junky uh in high def and the story is i don't know just pretty dumb did you guys enjoy nightbreed
4: yeah i'm I liking it but i it's been a long time since i've seen it i love it
5: and i especially love the the um the director's cut did you watch it on Shudder?
6: I watched it on Shudder, so is that the director's cut? I think it is, right? But It's not like the full, full director's cut or something?
5: Yeah, there's like the normal cut, which is like the studio meddled with. There's the director's cut, which is like more in line with what Clive Barker wanted. And then like there's like this crazy Midian cut that's like two hours longer than that. And it's like huge and epic in scope. And that like I think only like five people have seen that.
6: I'm not sure that I could handle two more hours with that lead <laughs> actor from Nightbreed. I, I thought he was just, like, the opposite of charm. Um, also watched Amityville from 79, the original, um, which I thought was pretty good. Very, very silly. Like, I, And this is one that I've seen before, but not since I was, like, a very young child. And it's it's kind of hokey in a lot of ways. Like, this house is, like, apparently so haunted that, like, when these priests decide to start driving towards the house their car crashes it's like what kind of a scope of powers does a haunted house have that it's <laughs> it's causing accidents across town now I, I, don't, <laughs> I don't know about this have you guys seen that recently or or you, you probably just saw like you know like me as a kid i yeah. saw it
5: kind of recently uh because i always like talk shit about it and like everybody was like no it's a classic you got to rewatch it and i rewatched it and like you i, I still want to talk shit about it It's pretty bad. It's kind of dumb.
6: Yeah, it's it's very over-the-top. But, I mean, it's got its moments. It's kind of fun, I guess. Uh, Romancing the Stone, um, the Michael Douglas, um, uh, Kathleen Turner, uh, kind of Indiana Jones-esque romance adventure, sort of a movie from the 80s. I thought that was a lot of fun. Um, It's one of those movies that, you know, I've seen the trailer for it a billion times, seen that poster a billion times in video stores throughout my youth, but I don't think I ever sat down and watched it, and Know, maybe i'm just becoming a grandpa but i was like hey, this, is, this is pretty fun i, I like these old timey kind of it actually kind of like a 1930s adventure tone almost
4: yeah that's another one that like i remember seeing as a kid on hbo all the time but haven't gone back and revisited as an adult so maybe it's time
6: it's it's out there it's good i think it's on hbo right now with the pixels uh saw the wicker man for the first time the original um classic yeah super classic i'm very late to the game on this If you have not seen the original Wicker Man, you know, I had known that I would like enjoy it, but I, I loved it. So I, you know, that gets my highest recommend if somehow you've missed it until now. Very nice. And then also uh, Niagara. Uh, The Criterion Channel is currently doing a Fox Noir uh, collection thing that they're highlighting. All these uh, Noir films uh, that Fox put out. And this one's got Joseph Cotton and Marilyn Monroe and it's all shot at Niagara Falls, like on location, looks gorgeous. It's in Technicolor and it is very Hitchcockian. And I, I feel like this movie is like not really seen or discussed enough. Uh, Bowman, I think you would love Niagara. Um, and it's it's streaming right now on Criterion. And then finally, uh, Carnival of Souls, which I... Oh,
4: hell yeah. The original, yeah. I assume.
6: Yeah, the original, which, you know, I had seen bits and pieces of it over the years, but never sat down and watched the whole thing. Just an incredible movie. That's now, like, one of my all-time favorites, having finally seen it. So
2: uh, that's a
6: movie that was made for, like, no money whatsoever, but is so memorable, and it, it gets under your skin. And I've been thinking about it for, the you know, the past week after seeing it.
4: Yeah, that's one, like, Night of the Living Dead that I'm so glad that the Criterion channel has released, because... Both that and Night of the Living Dead were, you know, infamous public domain movies. And so there's so many shitty, you know, uh, transfers of them floating around on budget DVDs and VHS tapes to finally see it, you know, nicely restored as it deserves is, is awesome. Because, yeah, that movie rules the atmosphere and it's great. It's a, like a perfect Halloween movie.
6: Yeah, uh, the... The abandoned, you know, it's not quite an amusement park, but Pleasure Center or whatever whatever the hell that is there out on the Salt Lake is so cool and spooky. And like the, the locals that they get to play these roles are all kind of they're like slightly off and they feel like they're in like a David Lynch kind of a universe. I don't know. I, I really loved it.
4: Nice. And yeah, my mom is a big fan of Niagara, so I'll tell her you said what's up. Oh, nice. Have, have you seen it? I've never seen it but i my mom always talks about it so huh? now that my mom and sean byron endorse it i think i have to see it have a movie night
6: with your mom you know sign her up for criterion it's you know it's probably mothers day eventually right just sign her up now and enjoy it together will do what about you kevin moss have you have you seen the world have you seen any movies have you seen anything
4: yeah a couple things that i just wanted to mention real quick i saw um while i was in new york i saw the movie the spine of night At the uh, Village East Cinema over in the East Village, and um, yeah, it was. It's if that's the one we talked a little bit about. I think when it played at um, either South by Southwest Fest or Fantastic Fest or one of those, it's that you know rotoscoped animated Ralph Bakshi meets like uh, heavy metal style animation. It's like a fantasy anthology movie with uh, you know barbarians and. Cool chicks with skulls on their heads, and um, you know, magic and sorcery and all that fun stuff. But yeah, if you like heavy metal, you like fire and ice, you like that kind of stuff, it totally harkens back to that. It's got some cool voice acting. You got Lucy Lawless as the main badass chick in it. You got Patton Oswalt providing some voices. But yeah, I really liked it. It was fun to see on the big screen. It was uh, co-produced by Shutter, so I imagine it'll have to be playing on there sometime soon. But um, if you get a chance to see it on the big screen, especially if you like, you know, adult fantasy animation something you don't really get uh too much these days definitely check it out would you
6: say that this film is psychedelic
4: absolutely if you can smoke a heavy doobie beforehand all the better
5: i like the sound of that
4: i mean yeah. that goes for
5: pretty much everybody every movie though right i mean <laughs> come on
4: yeah maybe not like uh i don't know some like grim documentary or something but most <laughs> yes
5: yeah, and not Kramer versus Kramer,
4: or like, you know. Right, like- fried, fried green tomatoes or something. <laughs> yeah. yeah.
6: I still regret all that acid I took before a Roscoe the Butcher.
5: <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
4: it's bad news bears. Mm-hmm. Uh,
5: you but yeah, took acid yeah. before bad news bears. That's why I didn't like it.
4: <laughs> yeah, I was very distracted. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, but the other thing I wanted to mention is I went and saw the Mystery Science Theater three thousand live time bubble tour when it came through town recently, uh, they play you know they had the uh, the bots there and uh, they're doing their thing and they riffed on the the movie that we did making contact several uh, years back on JFD, which was fun to see. I forgot how fucking batshit crazy that movie was, um, but yeah, it was a lot of fun. So if you like MST three k and Making contact if they're coming into your town. I say go see it. Not that MST3K okay. needs me to plug it, but I did have fun.
6: Let me ask you this, Kevin Moss. When you go to one of these events with these robots in attendance, do they do any kind of a meet and greet? Can you get your photo taken with these robots?
4: I think you can. Well, see, the thing is, is like there's so many people there that are um, like Patreon backers and stuff, like people that like donated money. They like get the show you know on netflix and so they get all these like perks like they get in like early and get the good seats and they get to yeah i think they get to meet and greet the, the puppets get behind the scenes on some technical muppetry and uh more like technical <laughs> tree exactly but, but yeah i don't know i didn't get a chance to take any, a picture with any puppets but what i do love about mystery science theater 3000 fans they're not shy about cosplaying at these events so you see a lot of people uh, dressed up as you know current and past host or they just do their own incarnation on the you know gizmonic jumpsuit like whatever they want or they've got you know homemade puppets like you know the homemade tom servos that they're carrying around or they're just characters from mystery science theater 3000 movies like manos or torgo or you know all manner of pod people and whatnot you so gamers walking around not that I saw walking around, but it's, again, not out of the realm of possibility. So I got to give it up to the MST3K fans. They are dedicated to the craft. But still, you got denied your photo. Yeah, no, no photos with the bots. On yeah. A bitch.
5: <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty upset about this.
4: We're going to get you that photo. All right. Let's see what we can do. How about you, Bowman? Bo, Anything exciting going on? Just playing the, the Vigi games?
5: I've been playing a lot of the Vidja games, um, and unlike you guys who saw a bunch of movies this week, my big story is that I didn't see anything. Uh, I don't know if you know, but another another big Marvel movie came out this weekend. I didn't see it. I'm not going to see it. So
4: just which one is that? the
5: Eternals, the Eternals.
4: Why don't you want to see that? You're just turned off by Kumail Nanjiani's uh, recent buffness. Well, that that does turn me off quite a bit. This guy, I used to listen to him on podcasts talk about how great Metal
5: Gear Solid is. Now, all of a sudden, he is the metal. <laughs> His muscles are made out of steel, this guy. Uh, but, yeah, it just looks stupid. So I'm not going to go. I'm out. I'm still out. I, so. I
4: can't say I disagree with you. Well,
5: <laughs> congratulations.
6: You're becoming an, an adult now.
5: I also, uh, it, well, when I decided that I wasn't going to go see it, they gave me a 401k. It was really weird. Disney sent it to me. I was like, yeah, here's your retirement plan. <laughs> time to time to balance your checkbook. Yeah, so so I'm out for another three weeks until Spider-Man comes out, which I will be seeing ASAP. Oh, that's going to be a, a good one? Uh, I don't know. But uh, it's going to be an exciting one because they're bringing in like Tobey Maguire and like Willem Dafoe and all this kind of crazy shit. So it's going to be a spectacle, at least.
4: They're going to play it at the Spectacle Theater.
5: <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. I just want to take a dump during it.
6: <laughs> it's going to be Dafoe as Green Goblin again, or, or what's yeah.
5: the deal? Dafoe is Green Goblin. Alfred Molina as uh, Doc Ock. They're bringing everybody back, getting the whole crew back together. It's in the
6: same continuity as that first one, or
5: it's like a revamp with the same actors, or what's going on? Do we know? It's a multiverse. Doctor Strange breaks the multiverse, so they're bringing those guys in from an alternate dimension. It's like an I episode this. of Sliders.
6: I hate this.
5: Why would you hate this? You hate the that, multiverse now?
6: Yeah, that's the start of, of all kinds of crazy, you know, whatever-they-want-to-do <laughs> ideas that they can now justify, oh, it's a multiverse, you know? Who's yeah. the most
5: popular actor right now? Yeah, well, now he's Spider-Man. But why? Well, that's a multiverse. <laughs> well, that's a, a big reason of why I'm kind of out on Marvel is because the multiverse is kind of like starting in like their TV shows and branching out, and it, it makes everything real stupid because nothing has stakes anymore. Yeah, exactly. Like, like you said, if Spider-Man dies, fuck it. We'll get a new one. New Spider-Man multiverse.
6: This is why I insist, you know, all the DC comics I read Pre-crisis.
5: I'm, I'm not living a post-crisis,
6: you know, a timeline.
4: <laughs> I totally yeah. agree. Yeah, the Marvel Universe is now like uh, all these restaurants since the beef shortage. Nobody has steaks anymore. that's <laughs> <laughs> You're hitting
6: too close to home, Kevin Moss.
4: <laughs> well, you want to check out what kind of uh, regrets these people out here in Junk Food Dinnerland have been getting? Uh, have been pondering this week. Yeah, they yeah, regret eating pie. Yeah, they're eating pie, they're regretting life. Uh, we have one voicemail in the old junk mail mailbag, and it comes to us from our old pal, The Fallen One. And uh, let's see what he has to say.
3: Hey, Junk Food doing guys. It's The Fallen One, and I don't have any recommendations, but since everyone is so uptight about jokes now, I thought I would tell you a joke that I made up. Okay. Oh. A little old school, so here it goes. A tired man walks into a bar and orders a drink. Bartender looks at him and says, Man, you look exhausted. The guy goes, It's my job. Bartender says, Oh, really? What do you do? And the guy says, Well, I'm a baker. I have to wake my ass up at 5 a.m. to get to the bakery down the street to make cookies, cupcakes, donuts, pastries. I have to make about 100 of these uh, once we open up shop at nine. Once nine o'clock, uh uh, rolls around that's when we get customers and cake orders just today i have to uh bake about 10 birthday cakes and 20 wedding cakes before the end of the week once 5 p.m rolls around that's when we close up shop and i have to clean the kitchen but my day is not done yet after i drink this drink i have to go home and set up for my master class see i teach everyone anyone online the art of baking i set up the cameras the lighting and once i'm done uh finished filming i have to make dinner for me or my kids long story short my wife and i are getting a divorce she cheated on me with a several lesbian and now she she's a full-blown lesbian anyway after dinner i took my kids to bed and I have to uh, finish editing my video by adding some uh, royal free music for flavor before I post it online. Once it's all over I look at the clock and it's about uh, 1 a.m. And I try to get some sleep. Uh, I do this every day to pay my bills, uh, my child support and my alimony. Bartender looks at him and says no, geez, I, no wonder you're so tired. I'd be tired, too, if I was a chronic master baker. <laughs> so that's about <laughs> it, you guys. See you guys later.
4: I thought this was a lot of fun.
3: <laughs> <laughs>
4: <laughs> Thank you, Fallen One. Might, might want to work on that setup there. It took a long time to get there. <laughs> but I appreciate where you're going with it. Um.
5: I think the setup's the best part. Okay. All the best jokes have really super long
4: setups. I was At some point, I just felt like the following one was just telling us his life story, telling us his problems. <laughs> <laughs> I hope hmm. none of that is autobiographical. You think the following one bakes goods? Maybe. Maybe that's
5: how he got his nickname. Like he tried to get the dough to rise, but it didn't work. <laughs>
7: mm-hmm. <laughs> all right
4: well if you'd like to tell us a joke or tell us a regret or sing us a song or tell us about you know what you think of the show or any anything for that matter call us up we're here for you we're like uh you know uh telemedicine you know mm. we're, we're like your th- online therapist give us a call let us know what you're uh, thinking at um three four seven seven four six junk that's 347-746-5865. Or if you're like me and you have a hard time remembering that number despite saying it every week, uh, you can just go to Facebook and hit the handy-dandy call now button and be instantly connected to the Junk Food Dinner voicemail line where you can let your thoughts just go. See what happens. Uh, or you can That's send us- real entrapment. It's real entrapment, but it's real fun. So pick with the phone and dial now. Or you can send us an email at jfdpodcast at gmail.com. All right, let's get into some nerd news. From the global resources of junk food dinner worldwide, it's time for nerd news. Uh, first piece of nerd news that I have some sad nerd news, and that is that Dean Stockwell has passed on into death. Uh, Stockwell. You might know him from a lot of different things. I think a lot of people know him from Quantum Leap. You know, I know him from Blue Velvet, Paris, Texas. He's in a great episode of The Twilight Zone called A Quality of Mercy, where he plays a, uh, a U.S. Um, lieutenant attacking a group of Japanese soldiers. Uh, that episode's also got Leonard Nimoy in it. Uh, he was in The Werewolf of Washington, lest we forget. He was the Werewolf of Washington. But he's been at it since he was a kid. I mean, he was a child actor. He was in The Boy with a Green Hair in 1948 he was the boy with the green hair. I mean everything he's in he's badass and but yeah, I mean he's got truly an impressive IMDb um you know, he's in Dune, he's the original Dune, he's uh I mean he's all over the place. He he's got over 200 credits to his name as an actor. Like I said, starting as a child actor in the 40s and working up all the way to his death, uh everything from you know, Oscar nominated movies, big budget stuff to straight to video nonsense and uh Goofy cult pictures. So uh he, he's all over the place, but whatever he's in, he's he's pretty much guaranteed to be sweet. But yeah, who doesn't love Dean Stockwell? How about you guys? Do you love Dean Stockwell? And are you sad to see him exit this mortal coral coil? He's uh
5: he's my favorite grocer.
4: <laughs> he does <Yeah>. stockwell. uh <laughs> <laughs> that's him. Uh yeah Duke him on Plan uh, Captain Planet and the Planeteers. Come on. Okay. Uh
5: I I just know him from from uh, the Quantum Leap, so and I've only that's seen that's
4: not like, true. You know, Beverly Hills Cop two. Yeah,
6: but
5: the Legend of Billy Jean, buddy. Yeah. Uh,
6: well, I don't mean, remember he... the time that he played Bob Grimes in To Live and Die in L.A. or as his friends called him, Old Grimy. Yeah,
4: yeah. he was in that Neil Young diva movie we did, Human Highway. Oh, yeah. didn't he
6: co-direct and write that movie, actually, I think? Besides just starring in it? Yeah, I believe. His, his hands in a couple
4: of those pies.
6: So you know yeah. Dean Stockwell
5: pretty Stockwell, well, I would say. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, yeah, right, yeah, I guess I do. I guess he pops up in a lot of places. Yeah, I mean, I'm you know, yeah, I don't, I'm not his number one fan, I guess, since I don't ever remember seeing him in movies. But, you know, I'm sad he's dead. I like Quantum Leap. The <laughs> few episodes I've seen. You better be sad.
6: That's that's the appropriate response here. <laughs> I'm sorry. If I catch you celebrating the death of Dean Stockwell, we're gonna have issue. But <laughs> I don't think I'll be doing that. I'm
5: not gonna go that far. But yeah. I mean, the the good thing about him being dead is that he will be replaced by multiverse Dean Stockwell pretty soon.
6: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um. Yeah. I'm, great actor um, I, I mean I would be lying if I said like I was the president of the Dean Stockwell fan Club or anything like that I, I don't uh, you know have a shirtless photo of him hanging above my bed or nothing like that uh, as far as you guys know but um yeah I loved him in blue velvet always fun to see him pop up and things yeah and I look I look forward to continuing to see him pop up in things because I mostly watch old movies so
4: yeah, well, and, and I, I was a little over-exaggerating saying he worked all the way up to his death. It's like he took the last uh, six six or seven years off to, you know, just chill out. Enjoy the last seven years of your life. Why not? I think that's reasonable. I think so. I think we can I, give the man seven years. I hope to get the same. <laughs> yeah. Just let us know when you're seven years away from death, and we'll let you
5: quit JFD.
4: <laughs>
5: that's in all of our
4: contracts. Yeah.
5: Uh, speaking of our contracts, it's also in our contract that we each get one free copy of a new vinyl that is coming out this Friday. Uh, TerraVision Records is bringing the Freddy's Nightmares soundtrack to vinyl for the first time oh. ever. <laughs> uh, you guys may remember the short lived television show Freddy's Nightmares starring Freddy Krueger. Um, apparently, Not the, character,
4: the real guy.
5: The real guy, yeah. <laughs> Uh, and apparently there was some music on that show And they're releasing it for some reason uh, I have to imagine that it's all like just like the music that they play right before commercials And right when they get back, like that music from Saved by the Bell <laughs> <laughs> But uh, I don't know, I've seen a few episodes of this show I don't remember any music uh, I don't know who's clamoring for this, but probably somebody uh, Are you guys going to pick this up? It's actually going to be the music from the commercials
6: and leading off the disc <laughs> is the uh, Crossfire song from that commercial. So I'm I'm pretty hyped on that. Um, I don't know. I, I would have to hear this music. I, I've seen a few episodes of this show. You know, some of them got those videotape releases back in the day, but it wasn't like a show that got a comprehensive release, at least for a long time. Um, so I haven't seen a ton of this show. Maybe there was some great music buried somewhere in there, but I, I kind of doubt it. It's probably just a shameless cash grab.
4: Yeah, like you guys, I, I haven't seen much of this show. I feel like as for someone who loved Freddy as much as a, as I did as a kid, I should have seen more of this. But like you said, the show is pretty short-lived and didn't get played a lot in syndication or in repeats, and it hasn't had a a, a very widely available home video release. So, yeah, maybe this is the first step, uh, getting the soundtrack released, and then maybe the actual show will get released sometime soon. But, yeah, I I can't imagine what this music would be other than kind of just – you know, cheesy, uh, synth, you know, scary tunes, but I don't know, maybe it's worth a spin, but yeah, it's a record with Freddy Krueger on the front. It's going to sell. People are going to buy this, <laughs> um, you know, and yeah, like I said, hopefully maybe this is the start to get the, uh, the show released. So we can all finally see it, see what, see what these tunes are all about. They, that TerraVision <laughs> does release some cool stuff that they put out all the music from, uh, um, unsolved mysteries and that's badass. It's uh-huh. a, a fun record to have. You know, oh yeah! Wanna creep yourself out? Just put that on. That
5: sounds fun. Uh, this Freddy will be coming out in a a single LP uh, of the best of, or a three disc collection. There's also a bundle that's got a shirt and some pins and stickers and crap. So that's fun.
4: Yeah, who doesn't love some crap? I love crap. Go buy some crap.
6: Well, if if you're in the mood to buy some crap, um, I got a Warner I- Warner Archive Blu-ray to recommend for you guys. It's uh, The Last of Sheila, which is a 1973 murder mystery movie starring James Coburn, James Mason, and Richard Benjamin. Uh, this is a movie that I really love. It's it's a really um, kind of unique murder mystery. It takes place in like multiple cities in the Mediterranean. Um, I recommend not reading anything about it if you are even remotely interested, just based on an early 70s murder mystery with these actors. You know, if that sounds like your speed, I say just give this a blind buy. Don't read the, the plot summary, which will spoil a little bit of it, because um, I love this movie. I've seen it a few times now, never seen it with great pixels. It's It's been a movie that's been kind of um, hard to find uh, over the years, but uh, it was actually written by... Um, music composer Stephen Sondheim wrote this uh, together with uh, Anthony Perkins. They co-wrote this. And um, it's it's really good. So uh, like I said, this is coming out this week f- uh, via Warner Archive. It's probably about 20 bucks right now on Amazon. But I, I think if you wait a few weeks, these tend to drop down to about 15 ish. Um, but have, have you guys seen this? Have you heard of The Last of Sheila? And are you interested in, you know, an early 70s murder
5: mystery with uh, Coburn and Mason and Richard Benjamin? I have not heard of this, but I am going to spend a lot of time later talking shit about Steven Sondheim, so I'm not interested in this.
6: <laughs> There's no music in it. I mean, other than, like, you know, whatever incidental background music.
4: Yeah, I have not even heard of this, but... Um... According to reviews, it's a Jack brain teaser, even if you forget it two minutes after you see it, says Movie Metropolis. A devilishly, devilishly complicated thriller of superior class, says Roger Ebert. All right, I'll check it out.
6: I know how you trust Ebert.
4: You've sold me. Um, I did want to mention real quick a, uh, a release. This is a, actually a DVD, if you guys remember those, before Blu-rays, you can get them. But this is a, a DVD called Virginia Creepers, in the horror host tradition of the Old Dominion. Um, there are just certain states that are fertile breeding grounds for horror hosts. I know Ohio has a long history of, of horror hosts, but Virginia actually is another one of these places. And this DVD showcases Virginia's long history of horror hosts. Uh, it's hosted by the uh, infamous Mr. Lobo and uh, has footage of old horror host segments from the likes of Count Gore Vidal, Dr. Mad Blood, Carlos Borloff. Come on, that's a good name. Mm-hmm. The, the Bowman Body. we got to find out what that's about. What? Dr. Gru- yeah, Dr. Gruesome, Sir Graves Gasly, The Great Zucchini, Dr. Sarcophagi, Hazel Witch, and Mr. Slime. Come on, you want to know about Mr. Slime, <laughs> the classic Virginia horror host. Uh, so all those clips are available on this beautiful DVD. Virginia, Creepers, the horror host tradition of the old dominion. Pick it up. Five bucks. It'll use com. Did you say Doctor Cucumber, Doctor Zucchini? I said Doctors, uh, the Great Zucchini, Doctor like a Sexual <laughs> euphemism, right? <laughs> I hope so. I sexual I euphemism. Let's hope so.
6: Well, yeah, that sounds great to me. Uh, I'm into these weird horror hosts as well. Uh, I didn't really grow up with a local one. Uh, You know, I had Joe Bob on Monster Vision and Elvira tapes once in a while, but uh, I kind of, you know, regret that I I did not grow up in a time where locally I had anybody like this. And uh, I would love to see what was going on around the rest of the country.
4: Yeah, like I said, two hours of horror host clips from the Virginia area. What's not to love? And Mm -hmm. being so close to D.C., I'm sure they drop all sorts of mad political humor. (laughs) Where do you see how they lampoon Nixon? (laughs)
5: I'm desperate to find out more about Mr. Slime. So
4: this is exciting to me. Yeah, who knows what Mr. Slime is like.
6: Now that's like a sexual
5: euphemism, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like kind of a weird fetish. <laughs> <laughs> He's just a dude covered in sexual lubricant.
4: <laughs> All right, well, on that note, I think we're going to take a quick break. We're going to investigate more about this Mr. Slime. But when we come back... We'll be talking about our first 1990s pulp hero movie, and that is Dick Tracy from 1990. So stick around. Also, why are they fighting Dracula for God's sakes?
1: A singular and unique event to present to you, giving us first television interview ever we have with us in person the most famous officer of the law in american history i'm speaking of detective emeritus dick tracy detective tracy we're so pleased to have you today uh, thank you call me dick i'm going to try to get used to that okay dick and i hope you call me one uh, dick You've been the subject of so many films, we'll even call them biopics, because they really are about your life and your adventures, if you will. Ralph Byrd played you. Morgan Conway played you. And of course, Warren Beatty played you. Wonder which of these films you think came closest to capturing the essence of the real you. Well. Are you asking me to pick? I, I guess I am. Asking. I guess I am. Ralph Bird, Morgan Conway, Conway, Warren Beatty. Warren, Warren Beatty. Well, to be quite fair, Mr. Malton, I don't know that it it's right to pick favorites. Pick favorites, pick favorites. Warren Beatty. Uh, uh, Beatty was. Uh,
0: he, he was. Uh, he, was uh, he was. He was wonderful.
1: No! No! Oh, you know, he he you know, not only starred in the playing you, he directed it. It, directed it, he produced it, and he even wrote, it, some it, wrote, it, some it, wrote it, something. Well,
0: it, some uh, he certainly doesn't seem to have a low opinion of himself, if you know what I mean. But but the, I, I don't mind that. And 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 I will say that I think that the scenery is a little funny, you know. Now whether that was intentional or not, I really couldn't say. But I don't know why he wanted it to look real like the Ralph Bird movies. Physically, physically, the man looks surprisingly like me. I mean, surprising, surprising, mm-hmm. surprising. But how similar how we are similar to one another, that's, <laughs> that's, that's, that's a horse of another color, right? Crime does not pay. That movie of of Beatty's, uh, uh, it gave you a feeling you were in something, you were in sort of musical comedy. In fact, there were songs that had actually written for the movie by Sammy Sontag. Excuse me, Sidney Sontag. Sidney, who's a very well respected Broadway producer. Very, very well respected. Even though, as you know, he's kind of public about running around being what I would call a major liberal, you know, and that's something I don't have a tremendous amount of patience for. I'm a conservative. However, yeah, oh, I've never got yeah. it, yeah. so I don't want to see. I don't want to judge. That's I don't want to judge. Okay.
7: Okay. Okay.
0: No, of course
3: not. From Touchstone Pictures. Let's go. Big boy, Caprice, <laughs> Flat Prune Face, Mumbles, Lips, Manless, and the Blank are out to get the greatest detective of all time. I'm rubbing him out. I want him dead. Nobody touches Tracy but me. Tracy, Tracy, Tracy. Do you mind if I call you Dick? When it's time to fight crime. Your man. Warren Beatty is Dick Tracy, rated PG. Dark Friday at a here near you. All right,
6: welcome back to Junk Food Dinner. The first movie on our 1930s via the 1990s uh, theme show uh, is going to be Dick Tracy from 1990, uh, directed by and starring none other than Warren Beatty. Uh, this movie concerns uh, the adventures of the hard-boiled 1930s comic strip detective, Dick Tracy, uh, played, as I said, by Warren Beatty, who is up against Al Pacino's big boy super gangster character in a hyper-colorful Sunday news strip version of 1930s America. Uh, In his pursuit of Pacino, he's going to have to deal with a whole host of weird-faced villains, uh, including Dustin Hoffman as Mumbles, uh, among many others. Uh, And between all the gangland violence, he's got to balance his love life uh, with his true blue girlfriend named Tess Trueheart uh, and the new Tentress in his life, uh, Breathless Mahoney, played by Madonna. Um, Besides that, he also adopts a homeless child uh, and doesn't really even bother to give the kid a name, just signs him right up for very dangerous police work and... Just calls him the kid throughout most of the movie, which is kind of a dickhead move. Uh, anyhow, the plot is not really that important because this is mostly an exercise in aesthetics, and the story has to, I think, just be good enough to keep people watching and you know keep things moving, which it does. Um, and you know the story actually does include a few surprising twists that I I won't go into right now, but maybe we'll get to in a minute. Uh, this is a movie that i last watched in june of 2020 uh, just last year um, and i think i mentioned it on the show back then uh, i was in something of a like a Madonna kick at the time watching a bunch of her stuff and um you know at the time i was curious about this movie in particular because i you know i remembered liking it as a kid and kind of remembering that there was this huge like media blitz for this movie you know it was at McDonald's and there were all these action figures and the Nintendo game and all this stuff. And I was kind of caught up in it. And I, I remember there also being like a little bit of a backlash at the time of, of people, you know, describing this as a box office bomb and people saying it was, you know, kind of crummy and, and laughing about it because, you know, like, oh, this this is the movie that finally gets Pacino and Hoffman together Is is this thing. Uh, But, you know, as a dumb little kid, I I thought, hey, this thing is weird and colorful and has all this, you know, special effect makeup that I enjoyed. And uh, as an adult, was curious to see if I would like it. And, um, you know, the the rewatch panned out pretty well, well enough that I uh, decided to pick it for the show this week. Uh, Let me run down some of the other cast members in this because it's a very good cast, in my opinion. You also got, besides the people I mentioned, uh, you have Seymour Cassell in this um, playing... Sam Ketchum, who's like Dick Tracy's, you know, number one assistant kind of a guy. Uh, you got Dick, uh, Dick Van Dyke in this as the DA. You got Paul Sorvino playing Lips, the gangster in this, which is kind of fun because he's he's also in The Rocketeer that we'll, we'll be talking about next. Uh, you got Kathy Bates. You got James Tolcan, the principal guy from Back to the Future, a, a, you know, a character actor that I really like. Uh, James Kahn, Charles Fleischer, Catherine O'Hara mary Warnov's in this for like half a second yeah and probably like a dozen other people that we could talk about like this thing is stacked with names that you'll recognize faces that you'll recognize pretty impressive casting you know i i will say uh warren Beatty himself is kind of boring but al pacino and madonna i think do a great job supporting him you know and, and i think to be honest i think madonna's n- not really a, a bad actress i think maybe at the time she got kind of a reputation for like being a crumb bum actress or like maybe she, you know, people thought she should stick in her lane or something like this and just, you know, stick with music. But I think she's pretty good in this, you know, maybe not as good in this as she is in like a league of their own or, or even desperately seeking Susan. But I don't know that there was another actress at the time in 1990 that would better uh, fit this role of like being a 1930s style blonde bombshell. You know, she looks like a Carol Lombard or something like this. And um, they also get away with some pretty foxy um, costuming for her, you know, considering this is a PG movie, uh, some some pretty revealing negligees and stuff like this that she gets to wear. So that's kind of cool. And also she's driving around town in like the coolest hot pink uh, roadster kind of a car. You know, it's like a 1930s.
4: It's purple. It's purple. But yeah, it is the, the best car in the movie.
6: It's Well, I would call it pink. I, I guess it's on the borderline there between pink and purple. But it reminded me of, like, she's like a 1930s version of Angeline or something. You know, obviously not a color that um, any car was actually made in uh, back then. But a cool choice. And, you know, I think those kinds of cool visual choices are probably, the you know, the main reason to watch this movie besides the cast. You know, this was shot by uh, a guy named Vittorio Storaro. Who um, also shot Apocalypse Now, uh, he shot The Last Emperor and you know a lot of other prestige pictures and it's it's a good looking movie you know just you know besides like the um you know the, the visual design of like the um, the sets and and the props and the costuming um, this guy knows what he's doing you know with the camera and you can really tell that uh, they spent a lot of time thinking of how this should look and it looks very distinctive you know there's this great shot early on with um, Dick Tracy chasing this kid down the train tracks and it really looks like a living cartoon in like the best possible way and and they do these like wide shots where they'll pull away and the action with you know the human actors is very small but surrounding them are these giant matte paintings and uh, and like models and stuff that they'll layer in there and it, it looks like really grand in scope you know kind of reminds me of the stuff that you'd see in a movie like Metropolis back in the day. Um, And it's got all this great makeup, you know, the very first scene of this movie, uh, you're sitting around this table with all these gangsters, you know, playing poker, and they've all got the wildest, you know, prosthetic makeup of all time, you know, and I love that stuff. Um, I don't think we will maybe ever see another movie uh, in our lifetime that has this many different uh, prosthetic makeup designs in it, you know, let alone in one scene. Just even in a movie, um, and all of them look pretty cool. You know, I think prune face was probably my favorite as a kid. I still like that prune face, but maybe these days I uh, might tend towards the blank face as being my favorite. But they're all uh, pretty fun, and there's funny stuff in this, like intentionally funny stuff. You know, I, I think everything with uh, Dustin Hoffman's mumbles character is pretty fu- pretty funny stuff. Um, you know, there's a, a scene early on where they're cutting between. Uh, Pacino doing his Pacino thing, where he's you know over the top and shouting at the other gangsters at his nightclub, and they cut back to Mumbles being uh, interrogated by Dick Tracy in this uh, inter- interrogation room at the police station, and um, Tracy's got this water cooler that is shaped like a uh, like a polar bear, and the like the spigot like the the faucet for the uh, the water cooler is right where the polar bear's dick would be that's kind of fun. I don't know. That's a weird choice for a Disney movie from 1990, but I think it's kind of fun. Kind of adds a little bit of flavor to that scene. Um, the music is, is decent in this. This is a Danny Elfman score and it's, I mean, it's not the most uh, unique thing that he, that he's ever done, but it, you know, sounds pretty good. Uh, Steven Sondheim, you know, we mentioned before also provided some songs for this and they're not like the most memorable songs of all time, but I didn't think that they were bad or really distracted from the movie and, Uh, there was one duet between Madonna and Mandy Patinkin where uh, Patinkin really gets to like demonstrate his range, you know, like he's going way high on the high notes and way low on the low notes. And I thought that was pretty impressive stuff from that guy. Um, So, yeah, I mean, overall, I think this is a lot of fun, you know, and it's, it's one of those things where, you know, I remember seeing Sin City when it came out theatrically and being kind of put off by its, comic bookiness I I thought that movie tried to do things in adapting the comic to screen that were maybe not suited to the cinematic experience like all that stuff with like paneling and you know making it look like it's in a comic book panel I I just found that stuff kind of exhausting with Sin City but with this movie I don't know the things that they chose to kind of adapt from the comic book uh, which is primarily just this hyper colorful style and these hideous looking villains I I think, you know, look great on screen. So, um, you know, I think if this was just kind of a more standard looking movie, people probably wouldn't care about it nearly as much today. Um, and not that people are overwhelmingly singing the praises of this, but I think the people that that do go back and rewatch this as an adult find that it, you know, it's distinctive in a way that is, is charming. And, um, yeah, I'm glad that I got a chance to rewatch this. Um, And I'm curious to find out, what did you guys think about Dick Tracy?
4: Yeah, I, like you, remember this movie being a big deal when I was a kid. Because, you know, this had come out shortly after Batman. And I think they were looking for the next, you know, big hype movie. And I felt like Dick Tracy was it. I mean, I felt like it had the same level of hype around it. I don't think it was received nearly as well. And I don't think it lived on as long as Batman. But at the time, it felt pretty comparable like you said i mean it was everywhere it had you know the video games the toys there was t-shirts i remember you know it was on uh, you know uh, cap and crunch boxes and you know you, you couldn't not see dick tracy i remember having the dick tracy fun book as a kid little activities and jokes and whatnot um uh, He was everywhere. But, yeah, I remember I saw this movie in the theater with my grandparents, which was appropriate because my grandparents were equally hyped on this movie, which was weird because they didn't usually get hyped on modern movies. But I think they were both fans of Dick Tracy, the comic strip. So they're like, cool. And, you know, grandparents can dig old cars and um, this old-timey atmosphere. And, yeah, I remember liking it a lot as a kid and, you know, watching it. Subsequently, on home video and all that jazz, but for whatever reason, it just kind of uh, faded away, and it wasn't one that I went back and revisited very often. But um, going back and watching it for the show, I'm glad I did because, yeah, like you, I, it looks great. I, you know, just for the visual style alone, I think this movie is well worth the watch. And I remember, you know, like you said, the the prosthetics were a big deal. You know, when it was released, I remember this is like, you know, one of the few non-horror movies that would get like big pages in uh fangoria and stuff like that you know of the of the makeup effects so and so i was really um you know appealed to that aspect of it as well and yeah i mean when this came out did you guys know who dick tracy was like this was the first introduction to dick tracy for me i wasn't familiar with the comic strip or the cartoon or anything like that
6: Yeah, I think this is how I learned about it, was via the marketing blitz, because the the comic strip was, I believe, long gone before we were born, right, right?
5: from from the newspapers. I think so, yeah. Yeah, I'd never heard of him.
4: Yeah, but, I mean, it's clearly trying to do that, like, kind of what, what Tim Burton did with Batman, but I think the visual style, I mean, it works well. I mean, like you said, there's those scenes where it's just a gigantic matte painting with, like, just a little segment of live action going on, and I think that works really well um to to kind of make and you know obviously just like all the bright colors and the the -the over-the-top nature of it i think makes it um work really well like while all three of these movies that we watched this week are stylish in their own way and are trying to kind of really hammer home that you know 1940s 1930s 1940s you know film noir pulp aesthetic i think this one definitely wins the style award because it just looks so good and every, all the colors are so bright and vibrant and it's over the top but for a comic strip character i mean you know that's what you want like you want it to look like that so and there yeah there's just a lot of really just gorgeous scenes in this movie that you could just pause it and you know blow it up and make a poster out of it and it would look really cool on a wall so yeah for that i love it um i, I think the story is a little weak i mean there's really not much to it other than the fact that you know al pacino comes to town takes over as the boss man uh dick tracy tries to nab him and then that plays out for you know two hours so not a whole lot to it um i think from a story perspective it's kind of like i said just kind of weak but like you said you don't need a lot of story just enough to get you through while you just kind of look at the visuals and take in all the the great aesthetic going on on screen so for that yeah it's it's a lot of fun um, I think Warren Beatty's fine in this. I mean, obviously being the star and director he's taken on double duty and I think he looks the part and he um, portrays it pretty accurately. He's not amazing by any means, but I don't think you have to be. I think the stars of the show really are the, the costumes, the backdrops and the uh, prosthetic effects. And, and Dick Tracy's is just there to kind of look cool and manly and uh, you know, not really show any emotion. And I think Warren Beatty pulls that off. Um, And, you know, he looks like the the character. I mean, he looks like a, you know, kind of square-jawed, you know, uh, 1930s man's man. So it it works. Um, And, yeah, like you said, just the cast of characters is amazing. Just so many cool actors in this. And, um, yeah, you got the little kid from Hook who later went on to be in Can't Hardly Wait uh, as the kid who's always eating. That's fun to watch him stuff his face with all those various... uh, confections from the from back in the day so that's always fun and yeah i yeah. You know, eating pie he's eating pie he's eating whatever <laughs> ice cream hot dogs it's great but yeah so i thought it was uh you know it's it's schmaltzy it's cheesy the storyline isn't anything to write home about but like i said there's enough going on on screen that it's just kind of a candy for the eyes and for that alone i say it's definitely worth a rewatch if you haven't seen it in a while
5: I agree. This movie is definitely worth a rewatch. Uh, I've been curious about this for a couple years to go back to it. I remember, like you guys said, it being like just super omnipresent, like, you know, Nintendo games and, and happy meals and shit like that. Like, I mean, this was like crazy. Um,
4: did you have it, any of the toys, the action figures? Oh yeah.
6: Yeah. I
5: don't, I don't think I did.
6: I had my Dick Tracy fighting my, my Ninja Turtles all the time, dude. <laughs>
5: um, yeah yeah i wish i did i don't know i'm sure i'm gonna look at those toys they're probably cool um they are well <laughs> i mean
4: the, the best were they, they just had all the villains you know with all their crazy faces and weird attributes
5: yeah and like that's a lot of what i remember <clears throat> at the time like before this came out is like i think mcdonald's had like a game or something where it was like you know you matched up two of the crazy villains and win like a free fry you know or free coke or something. Yeah. Um, And, like, the villains were, like, such a huge selling point on this that I was shocked that pretty much all of them get killed in the first scene. (laughs) Uh, That is quite the bummer. Like, I don't know if they were, like, just really pushing the villains to try to, like, get kids to want to see this, knowing full well that they were going to be let down after the first 30 seconds. Or if they, like, wanted to pull, like, a, a psycho on you and be like, hey, check out all these crazy villains uh psych you know anything can happen now it's especially
6: weird because i feel like as soon as this movie wraps warren Beatty is like asking the studio for a sequel and it's like dude you, you killed all the villains like you could have saved a few you know <laughs> but maybe there's a billion in the comic strips you know this thing ran for decades and i think there are like just tons of villains in those comic strips and, and maybe there's cool ones they could have brought i don't know yeah, yeah.
4: I mean, well, yeah. it's just—it's just funny because they—they really did make an action figure out of every person they gave prosthetic makeup to. Like, they even made a, a an action figure of the tramp, the guy that was like housing the little kid in like the hobo shack that Warren Beatty beats <laughs> up. It's like, why would you want an action figure of him, the tramp? He doesn't even have a name.
5: <laughs> yeah, uh, it, yeah, it is weird. Like, because like a lot of the, you know, I mean, obviously you want cool prosthetics for like s- the small face guy and prune face and all these like kind of crazy guys. But then like, you know, even like random beat cops just have like fucked up monster faces for some reason. <laughs> and like, that's kind of unsettling. Um, <laughs> it's very strange. It's um, almost
6: like they're throwing shade at this cartoon artist, like drawing style. They're like anything that this guy draws is going to look like a hideous creature.
5: <laughs> I think so. Yeah. Um, And well, I mean, we get a little bit of that with the shadow too, like them kind of like not wanting to, well, well in the shadow, they kind of don't want to commit to the art style in a lot of ways. And here, I think they commit way too much to the art style. Um,
4: But I think that's to its benefit, not to its detriment.
6: Yeah, I I agree. I think that's, that's what's unique about this.
4: Yeah,
5: it, it is unique. And that's what is good about this movie, but it is also an unrelenting assault on all your senses. Like, yeah, <laughs> and that's the part I didn't care for. Uh, like it's just like constant primary colors, burning out your retinas. Constant, like ear-shattering people yelling. Like Al Pacino, th- Warren Beatty should have stood up at some point and said, "Al Pacino, shut the fuck up, <laughs> act like a human, or do like do something. Fix your fucking acting." Uh, Because he just yells during the whole fucking movie. He's great in this. I mean, what else would you want from a,
6: you know, a ridiculous, over-the-top, you know, newspaper comic strip villain? Like, he should be this broad. Like, do you really want a subtle performance from Al Pacino (laughs) in this role? I don't know.
5: You can be broad without hurting my ears, I think. There's a volume button on your remote. I should have just watched it with the subtitles. Turned it all the way off because it hurt. The Steven Sondheim songs that play all throughout the fucking runtime suck. Um, I hated them. They, I mean, I feel like it was probably some Madonna shit where like she's like, "Yeah, I'll be in your movie, but I got to sing like fucking ten songs or something," and they're all really bad. And I love Madonna. She looks great. Her acting, I think, is very good. Like you said, Sean. But Ma- like Madonna, for everything she's done. Writes good songs. I assume maybe somebody else writes them. I assume she writes her own songs. Great performer, good dancer, good actor, uh, great pop star. Not really known for her singing. And dull-ass Stephen Sondheim songs mixed with Madonna's like kinda okay singing. It wears it wears on you. It wears you down. And they do. I mean, there's like what two or three montages of her singing. Cut to Dick Tracy just arresting characters that we've never seen before. Like, I don't know, it's, it, it it wears you down. It wears you down. Um, I like a lot of the backdrops and the uh, the um, like matte paintings and stuff. Like you guys said, those things are really cool. Like people running through them. It's um it's kind of literal, but like from the comic. But I mean that works. Like you guys said, that's kind of what. This movie excels at is being very very literal And so that's That stuff's all good Um, Like you guys said Mary Warnoff Is in this and that's great Michael J. Pollard is also in this and He plays uh, I think his name's Bug Bailey the guy who has Bugged the bad guys uh, base and listens In on them and He's super cool Um, The lips guy who's Paul Sorvino he is A nightmare to look yeah. at it's
6: very <laughs> weird looking Well, it's, it's not i'm not him specifically it's it's him in this makeup
4: right let's not yeah answer. the <laughs> makeup reminds me a lot of um jeffrey tambor's makeup in that episode of tales from the Crypt. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah except like
5: more like he looks like a like a, a citizen of innsmouth like he's like half fish yeah. half man
4: that's and his name right fish lips or whatever
5: i think so yeah
6: there's a little bit of maniac cop in there too i think I think that's accurate, yeah.
5: Um, this is an underrated, understated uh, Christmas movie, apparently. There are some wreaths uh, during a shootout in the background, so if you want to throw this on during Christmas, please do.
6: Didn't even notice that, and, and I've watched this twice <laughs> now in the past year.
5: <laughs> this, it's the scene where he, like, Dick Tracy's walking his girlfriend home with the kid, and like uh, some of Al Pacino's dudes show up and like do like a drive-by shooting. There's Christmas wreaths everywhere.
6: Okay. All um, right.
5: So, so a Christmas movie. So that's oh, cool. I'll watch it again next month. <laughs> As you should. Um, I don't like the kid. I think he's like very transparently just there so that kids will will want to see this and like it and buy the toys, but he doesn't add a lot to it. Um, and yeah, so I don't know. Like, I want to like this movie. I think its aesthetics are cool. I think its cast is great. I applaud it for what it's trying to do, but it's so much. It is just so much stimuli that I, I don't know. If I could watch this like a serial, like if I could watch this like 15 minutes at a time (laughs) over the course of several weeks, I would probably love it.
6: Well, I'm, you know, I'm kind of shocked. I thought this was going to be the movie that would bring us, you know, the three of us closer together. I I thought this was going to change everything, you know, with our dynamic. I, I thought, Man, I'm 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 let down, Bowman, and I'm gonna have to go back to the well and and figure out what to do with this info. But um, I'm glad that you watched it, and and I hope that you'll reconsider your love not only just for this film, but for old Stevie Sondheim <laughs> I think he you know he probably deserves it. Um, but that probably about wraps it up for Dick Tracy. We'll come back uh, pretty shortly, and we'll be discussing the Rocketeer. So stick around.
2: Well, we're broke. All of the stock we bought in Gutterball's VHS tapes and Oogie Loves merchandise was a bust. Can you help us get back on our feet by donating a few bucks on Patreon? Go to patreon.com slash junkfooddinner. Sign up for just a buck. For the low price of 10 bucks, you can become a Dom Deloise and pick the JFD movies. And for just $5, you can get access to our library of literally dozens of bonus episodes. For just one dollar, you can buy us a monthly can of beans we will share while wearing fingerless gloves. Please help your junk food dinner boys out so they don't have to start doing unscrupulous things under the Queensboro Bridge.
4: I discovered them under the Queensboro Bridge, jerking out punks for $15 an hour.
3: Innocent discovery.
1: I wouldn't touch that if I were you. A powerful weapon. How long that rocket? A deadly conspiracy. They're working for a Nazi agent. An extraordinary adventure. Jenny's in trouble. We've
0: got
7: the girl.
2: Here he comes.
7: The rocket will come to us. We're
2: only gonna
1: get one pass again.
4: Rocketeer welcome back to junk food dinner the next 1930s pulp action film made in the 1990s that we're going to be taking a look at is the rocketeer from 1991 much like dick tracy i remember this movie getting quite a bit of action and uh hype around it before it came out not quite as much as dick tracy and certainly not quite as much as you know batman but uh, it was it was similar i remember ha- some happy meal toys maybe so definitely a nintendo game uh it was certainly plastered all over the backs of every comic book i picked up in 1991 i feel like i had an advertisement for the rocketeer in it um and at the time i, I was primed for this for whatever reason like there was that movie memphis bell that came out and you know we had just recently taken a field trip to the uh the dayton air force museum and i was looking at all those cool 19, you know world war ii planes and, and i don't know something about the time that this came out i, I the idea of world war ii flyboys were they were very cool in my brain and i still like those guys you know they they were kicking ass and uh in in vehicles that they could very easily die in so good for those guys defeating the nazis with their with their planes were, um, you,
6: uh, were you watching DuckTales at the time, or um, sure. what was the other one with Gyro Gear Loose? Because those had kind of the old-timey Flyboy aesthetic as well.
4: Sure, Tailspin?
6: Yeah, exactly, yeah.
4: Well, Tailspin's just Casablanca.
6: Well, yeah, but but yeah. I mean, that is that is kind of the, the vibe of this as well. There's like a Casablanca kind of feel here.
4: Sure, so yeah, this is um, unlike Dick Tracy and The Shadow, which were based on characters from their you know 1930s 1940s time frame this is actually based on a comic book um that premiered in 1982 but was set in the 1930s and the comic book and the characters were all kind of loosely based on on real life people and some of that bleeds over into the uh into the film like there's obviously you know howard hughes in this movie And, you know, you've got your Timothy Dalton villain character who's kind of based on, like, Errol Flynn. And, you know, um, Jennifer Connelly's character in this in the comic book is very much based around Betty Page. They kind of toned down the Betty Page look on Jennifer Connelly in this movie, I guess, because it was Disney. But, yeah, it was all kind of just based on existing people from that time frame and taking that 1930s wartime aesthetic and um and like we talked about you know that art deco style and uh putting it into comic book form and i guess the uh the comic was popular enough to catch the eye of disney who optioned it and turned it into a film in 1991 and yeah it's um you know i remember seeing it again in theaters as a kid being pretty hyped for it uh, leading up to its release and really liking it and then seen it a couple more times subsequently on home video, and much like Dick Tracy, it just went into a vault in my brain and I never really thought of it again for another 20-some years, Um, but I have gone back and revisited revisited it a couple times recently just because it's popped up uh, on cable and on-demand services here and um, I still like it to this day, Uh, much like Dick Tracy and The Shadow it's got, you know, kind of a a wild all-star cast of, of, of cool actors. Um, and some not so cool actors. I mean, we've got Paul Sorvino in this again, uh, making his second appearance on this show, uh, as a, as a mafioso. Like I said, we got Timothy Dalton as like kind of our main villain playing this Errol Flynn like actor at the time. We've got Alan Arkin as PV, the, uh, the guy who he, he's not the rocketeers dad. He's, I don't know. They kind of have like a Doc Brown, Marty McFly relationship. He's like this old engineer guy. And um, and our main dude, the, I'm just going to keep calling him Rocketeer. He has a name, but <laughs> Cl- Cliff, um, played by Billy Campbell. They have a weird relationship, him and Alan Arkin. They're just uh, just an old man and a younger man who live together. and <laughs> That's how it goes in the
6: inventing world, I guess.
4: <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, Billy Campbell plays our main guy clifford the rocketeer he's an actor that i don't really know much of besides this um i mean he was a handsome dude he was kind of like the 1991 equivalent of like ryan reynolds i guess or something um i guess he played luke fuller on dynasty i guess that was his big claim to fame before the rocketeer but i don't remember seeing him much else after this i guess he was just kind of another pretty face but uh we've got like i mentioned jennifer connelly as jenny blake his his sweetheart and yeah if you've never seen oh you got terry o'quinn as howard hughes himself um Clint Howard. Clint Howard oh, makes a brief again. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. So if you if you've never seen The Rocketeer, the basic story is that um, our boy Cliff is is this like hotshot flyboy who um, flies planes. And one day he's flying a, a new plane, and while he's doing so, there's a chase between the feds and these crooks who have stolen an experimental piece of government equipment. Uh, that is essentially a jet pack. And um, in the shootout, they're chased by the cops. They, uh, one of the bad guys with the jet pack drives into the barn um, of Cliff and, and Peavy and hides the rocket pack before uh, probably getting arrested or killed by the cops, I forget. And then Cliff and Peavy find the rocket pack, test it out, and figure out what it is uh pv makes some adjustments to it so they can easily be flown by by cliff and next thing you know cliff's the rocketeer um but uh, timothy dalton like i said playing this character neville sinclair who's kind of this arrow flynn you know swashbuckling actor he gets word uh that the that the rocket has gone missing the jetpack and we find out that he has an interest in this jetpack. Um, as it turns out, that he is not exactly just an actor, but in fact, he is a traitor to the Nazis. And he is uh, helping them steal this jetpack to help the Nazis get the technology of the jetpack so they can have an army of Nazi, fl- Nazi flying men. So um, it's up to our hero, the Rocketeer, to make sure that that doesn't happen. Um, like I said, much like. All three of these movies this does uh you know have a heavy style uh rooted in the world of 1930s noir films and pulp movies it's definitely harkens back to a lot of the old school uh you know golden age of of hollywood kind of stuff obviously being set in hollywood um but also you know just having a lot of that same aesthetic with the architecture and the the design and stuff and uh, i think it all looks really good um you know both dick tracy and the rocketeer got in right under the wire before cgi really took hold um as we'll talk a little bit about when we get to the shadow so i don't i feel like there's pretty minimal cgi in both these movies um and and most of it is like practical or optical effects which i think works really well for this um style of you know big budget action movie and yeah i think just overall um this one is is a lot of fun i think of all three of these this is the story that i feel like is the most compelling um i don't know i just like you know the kind of real world elements that they incorporate in this i like um you know i like jennifer conley i like i think she's a a good uh, dame in this in this picture i think alan arkin is really charming uh timothy dalton is over the top but not you know al pacino over the top um and yeah i think just all in all this is is a fun movie i can see you know why it's not like considered a stone cold classic to this day it is like dick tracy a little bit cheesy and a little bit predictable and uh and hokey at times some of the acting is you know they're trying to go for that uh 1930s pulp style so it can be a little hammy at times especially some of the secondary characters but Overall, I still think this movie has enough charm, enough action, and enough um, good times that it's definitely worth a revisit, much like Dick Tracy, if you haven't seen it in a while, like I hadn't, um, yeah, definitely throw it on. I think you you have a good uh, you know Saturday afternoon matinee watching this. But what did you guys think of the Rocketeer?
5: Well, I've been wanting to see this Rocketeer for a good while. Um...
4: Oh, you never saw it on its original release.
5: No, not when I was a kid. I, I remember it coming out, and uh, yeah, just for some reason. I don't know. I, I didn't see it. It seems like the kind of thing I would have seen at the time. But uh, I remember it being kind of a thing, but I never saw it. And it's it's kind of picked up steam, I think, lately as as kind of an overlooked um, movie. Um, so I've been wanting to see it, and also because... Um, You know, I think it probably picked up some steam as being kind of overlooked because the director of this did the first uh, Captain America Marvel movie. And so, you know, people would say, like, that most of what he was doing in that movie that was hugely successful kind of comes from the Rocketeer. And after seeing it, I, I think that that's very true. In fact, I think that this movie, like, I think that, you know, that especially that, like, first batch of Marvel movies, like the first two Iron Mans and Captain America and Thor um, really like this is kind of the prototype for that kind of stuff more so than like the mm-hmm. Tim Burton Batman or the Donner Superman. I think it kind of comes from like this and Indiana Jones. And I think that there's a big Indiana Jones influence on this. Um, I think that Joe Johnston, the director is like a Spielberg protege. So I think that that, that influence is pretty, pretty clear. Um, but yeah, I think that, you know, like that first sort of batch of Marvel movies, like this is rooted in real world stuff. Uh, the Howard Hughes thing, obviously it was a big influence on, you know, Tony Stark and iron man and stuff. And like, but I mean, it's mo- like in this and in those, um, there's like a, just a real sense of like fun and adventure. And like they, the stakes are real and you care about the characters enough to care if they fail or succeed at what they're doing. And the danger seems real but it's also just like there's like a very light touch just very fun like nothing's too serious nothing's too heavy um and it's just like a fun adventure romp and the tone i think is like very it's like real perfect in this what they're going for um cuz yeah it's just like you know even when there's like nazis with guns like you know who got our our boys on the ropes like it's still just like a you know very fun and you know Nothing, nothing too heavy, and I, I think it really works for this. Um, and, you know, like, there's that kind of sense of um, kind of, you know, like, the, what the character goes through, the Rocketeer, is sort of like what America was kind of going through at this time, where it's like, hey, cool, we just lucked into, like, all, like, we lucked into all this crazy-ass technology. We got jets and we got atomic bombs and all this crazy shit, but we don't know what to do with it. Isn't this a wild-ass ride? Yeehaw kind of an attitude Mm
7: -hmm.
5: Um, (laughs) like that, that feeling that I think was going on probably in America at the time is perfectly reflected here um, in these characters who, you know, our our main guy Rocketeer and Alan, um, Alan Arkin. Is it Alan? Yeah. It's Alan Arkin in this. I get him and Alan Alda mixed up, but like they're very like kind of like, you know, I mean, I think they're from like Bakersfield or something, but like, they're very like, or like the, the Valley. Something like that. But, like, they're very, like, Midwest dudes. In fact, uh, Alan Arkin kind of has, like, a southern accent a few times in the movie for some fucking reason. But he (laughs) he kind of quickly gives it up after a while. Um, And so, yeah, you really kind of feel, like, that they're, like, this kind of, like, middle America type dudes thrown into all this crazy technology. Thrown into this crazy L.A. lifestyle, this Hollywood lifestyle, thrown into this crazy Nazi plot, like... And so the fact that those two guys are like really grounded, I think like keeps a lot of the fantastic elements of this grounded. There's one really cool shot that happens in this um where like the Nazis are like trying to get our boys and they they get to jump on Alan Arkin and you know they they pull a gun on him. Alan Arkin looks surprised and then it smash cuts to a flashbulb going off in Hollywood and I think that's such a cool shot because. Uh, I mean, A, it just implies that there's been a gunshot. And so we think that some dangerous shit happened to this guy. But then later on, we find out that, you know, he was okay after all. But because the flashbulb goes off, like, it's it's so much more effective than just, like, if the bad guys had come in and be like, stick him up, my man, you know, or whatever. Because, you know, because it implies the, the you know, a violent end for Alan Arkin without, like, giving us... You know, any reason to believe that textually? It's just a wonderful shot. I just love it. It it delighted me. I love the big face, dude.
4: The big oh face. yeah. He yeah. he was clearly his face was clearly modeled after that actor Rondo Hatton. You know who that guy is? I don't think I do. Google him. He looked. I mean, they clearly he was an actor from this time period that had like that like meglia or whatever where uh, you know your face grows real big
6: oh uh, yeah yeah oh yeah
4: and i think they clearly modeled that makeup job after after that guy
6: i think i've seen this dude on the cover of famous monsters with no sure. makeup on
5: you know what yeah. i mean yeah mm-hmm. yeah i i thought my my frame of reference was the the indian serial killer in um in body double the de palma movie i thought he kind of looked like that guy
6: that guy yeah. does rule in this. Like, it, it's not just the makeup, but like the guy in the makeup. I guess his name is Tiny Ron, who was like a real seven foot tall dude. Shows up in a few movies. He's in Ace Ventura and some other things. But like, he's got a real hulking presence. Like, just very uh, um, threatening.
5: You know, they, they probably should have got him to play Jason Voorhees at some point. Yeah, he's really good. I liked him, and you know, unlike, I mean, not to keep. <laughs> beating up on dick tracy but a real less is more kind of a thing where like we have the one monster face guy in this and i think that a little goes a long way with him and um i really liked him um jennifer connelly is really good in this and as the runtime goes on the more exposed her boobies get and I like <laughs> that like she's wearing like that nightgown and she's doing a lot of running and fighting so the boobies kind of look good <laughs>
6: there's that one moment where uh, timothy dalton introduces wc fields to her
7: uh-huh. and
6: we get the pov shot of him just staring at her tits in this pg <laughs> disney film
5: yeah well wc fields is a notorious pervert <laughs> um but i mean who can blame him she's a very foxy lady uh the i love the scene where timothy dalton is like doing the swashbuckling movie and they go through they One shot, I think it's like one shot, one really long take where like they do the whole thing and you know the whole swashbuckling and then like the lady like does the bad line reading and messes it up. Like that's really funny to me. I like that whole sequence and then they have to do it over. And so we hear them do it over even though we're following different characters who aren't on set. I like that a a great deal. Timothy Dalton is great in this. I'm not a big fan of his Bond stuff, but. Um, I think he's wonderful in this, and he's really good in the show Penny Dreadful. So maybe I'm a maybe I'm a Dalton man now. Maybe I should rewatch those Bonds. Because um, yeah, he's really good. It is kind of a shame, like that every like all the promotional material. Like if you go to IMDb or Letterbox, it says that the rock, You know, watch this movie where the Rocketeer fights Nazis. And but in the actual movie, like you don't know anything about Nazis until you know the hour mark or whatever. So that's kind of a bummer, but uh, that everybody wants to spoil that. But I, Timothy Dalton as a suave, dickhead, Nazi <laughs> spy is so good. I love it. So, yeah, there's a lot to like about this movie. I think it's very fun. Um, I think that the the flying around in the rocket pack looks really good. Um, I mean, I, it's, it's many years later. So, I mean, obviously the technology would have advanced, but I think it's a lot better than like the Donner's Superman where... He's just like flying through the clouds like a dork. Like it's very like action packed and like visceral and stuff. What the Rocketeer does.
6: Yeah. It, I mean, it looks better than anything that they would make today. And, in, in, you know, these new Marvel movies that, you know, I agree are kind of, um, um, you know, the aunt, um, children of, of this movie in a way, because, you know, the CG, you're always going to have that falseness of, you know, that it's not a real person. Like I'll, I'll take this kind of effect where it's, clearly a real person and yeah big deal there's like a slight tiny little black line around them because it's like a composite shot or whatever like that's preferable to have a real actor in the frame i think
5: yeah and i mean the, the scenes where he's like in that little jet uh flying around at the beginning that and then it catches fire and like the camera's like kind of locked on him in the cockpit so you see it's a real dude in a real plane that's really on fire um before he gets the rocket pack like that's stuff is all super great too so um yeah it really works all of like they really sell you on the rocketeer stuff um so yeah i think this movie is very 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 good
6: yeah i didn't really know what to expect with this one because i you know i did watch this
5: you know around
6: the time when it came out on home video uh when i was a kid but i i didn't really remember um at all you know what my reaction to it was so i mean i'm guessing it didn't make much of an impression uh, back then. Um, and, I'm and, you know, I'm sure that as a little kid, I didn't uh, fully understand these references to like James Cagney or, you know, the, uh, the Errol Flynn Robin Hood um, kind of recreation that they're shooting, or, you know, any of these very specific 1930s kinds of references that they were making. I'm sure I was charmed by the action. Um, but it, yeah, it just, I guess, didn't leave a big impression. Uh, but lately, you know, I, I have been watching a lot of grandpa movies from the 1930s and 40s and uh i was interested to see you know uh, what would it be like to uh step into disney's 1990 recreation of that kind of a world and it between dick tracy and and this and and roger rabbit actually which i don't think we've even mentioned up until now uh, it feels like disney was specializing in this kind of uh, uh material back then and and uh you know, it's also got great pixels these days on Disney plus, and um, it's been on my watch list on Disney plus since I signed up. So for all those reasons and more, I you know I was very excited to uh, get around to re-watching this finally. And from the opening scene, uh, you know, i I knew that I was in for a treat. Um, I, I think that opening scene uh, is a pretty perfect piece of action filmmaking, you know, and it it all happens while the opening credits are running. and, uh, by the, you know, the end of the opening credit scrawl, um, you got like this great introduction to these characters that you now care about. You understand what the world is like. Uh, you've experienced this danger together with them. Um, and I, yeah, I just thought all that stuff right at the beginning was like, wow, this, this movie just kicks into gear immediately and is doing so in a way that I didn't expect from a, a Disney live action movie, to be honest with you, um. And the cast in this is great, like you guys said. Um, there are a few other names I wanted to shout out. Kerry O'Quinn is in this. You know, John Locke himself from Lost. Uh, always loves seeing him and stuff, and he's he's pretty fun in this. Uh, Jennifer Conley's mom is played by Pat Crawford Brown, who's maybe not a name that you remember, but uh, probably definitely a face that you would remember. She plays the old lady in uh, the Elvira movie, And she plays the old lady in about 200 other things. You know, she's just one of those fun old lady actresses from the time. Uh, I agree with you. Timothy Dalton, I think, is incredible in this. You know, he is very funny in this and seems to be enjoying himself and just, like, leaning into the villain stuff in a way that I thought was just a ton of fun. Um, Bill Campbell's fine. Uh, You know, I, I think, honestly, that might be one of the things that holds this movie back in terms of it being, like, very fondly remembered is that it doesn't have a more memorable or or bankable star as the lead of this um if this kid had gone on to do more work that people really loved or something like this i think um there would be that motivation for people to go back and rewatch this over and over again but you know he's fine just you know just not a not a incredibly engaging lead i guess Uh, But the locations are great in this, you know, Um, and I think when you're scouting 1930s Los Angeles locations, you got to get Rick Deckard's apartment from Blade Runner in the mix, you know, a.k.a. the Ennis House, which they set a lot of activity in this movie uh, in that house. And it's a really cool house. So uh, love to see that. Uh, They also have the Bulldog Cafe location in this, which is so cool. It's like a. a yeah, it's, it's like a, a real 1920s roadside programmatic um, cafe building uh, from Los Angeles. But it, I think by the time of this filming it had been long since torn down. So they made a recreation of it that looks looks great. It, uh, you know, you can see photos of the original and, and the recreation that they made here looks perfect. And the recreation actually uh, did survive. And, uh, and I've seen it. There's a bar in the valley in, in North Hollywood, California, called Idle Hour. that is it's it's itself in kind of a cool building. It's like this um barrel shaped building um, that you walk into. It's like a whiskey barrel. Um and in the back, they at some point obtained uh, this bulldog cafe from uh, disney and and they use it as like a little side building where there's like little, I don't know, there's like a table set up in there. you can hang out in it. but it's cool. So if you're ever in North Hollywood, if you love this movie, uh, check out the Idle Hour bar and, and you can see this uh, Bulldog Cafe. Um, yeah, you know, the other thing that I thought was fun about this is it's clearly, <clears throat> it's clearly like a more um, well-crafted film uh, than like those 1970s uh, Disney live-action movies. You know, it's it's made with a lot more care and and certainly a lot more budget than things like uh, Herbie the Love Bug and The Computer Wore Tennis Shoes, but it's, it's also still very much concerned with like this inventory kind of a thing, you know, where it's, you got this almost like, like a mad science type of invention that's driving the plot line. And for me, I I think those are often, you know, the most fun kinds of kids movies are these uh, mad science type films, you know, whether it's a back to the future um, or, you know, um, Herbie, the the love bug Um, and lots of cool planes. Like you guys said, you know, I'm not necessarily a vintage aviation buff or anything like that, but I, I'm sure that there are guys out there who are really into that stuff, and for them, like this movie is going to be like their bible, and I think that's cool for them. Um, it's crazy to me that this movie flopped as hard as it did. Uh, if you look at uh, the returns for this, it, it's pretty dismal. You know, they um, I think they spent 40 million to make this thing, and it only earned them 46 million, uh, which is it's, I mean, I guess just slightly better than Breaking Even, but probably with marketing and all that, uh, they probably lost money on this thing, which is crazy to me because you look at Dick Tracy, a movie that cost a little bit more than this. It cost $46 million, that people describe as a flop, but did make $163 million worldwide. So this is substantially less successful a film. Than Dick Tracy, which is shocking to me because I, you know, I, as much as I like Dick Tracy, I think it is a more unusual and probably less broadly appealing movie. I, I guess they really did cash in on what remaining name recognition they had with that character, you know, with the Kevin's grandmas of the world. But uh, I would think that this movie would actually appeal to a huge range of audience, you know, were they to actually go out and see this. I think that this is something that you could have seen with your parents back in 91 and you and your parents probably would have enjoyed it. Um, you know, and, and I'm sure by now, you know, they've recouped their money on home video, you know, and via merchandising and stuff like this. But yeah, it's, it's strange to me that this did not hit in a bigger way. Cause I think this is a, a really fun movie. I think it's, it's well-made and, Um, of the three films that we're talking about tonight, like, this would be the one that I would think, like, yeah, this would have been a huge success, but it, yeah, success just eluded them with this one, I guess.
4: Yeah, it is strange, because, I mean, like I said, when this came out, it felt like it was, like, in my world, like, one of the biggest movies around. Like, I feel like it got talked about all the time, but, yeah, it did disappear pretty quickly. You know, sadly, we never got to have... Like a Rocketeer ride or anything at Disney World, but you know uh, you can still relive it on Blu-ray or on Disney Plus. But there you have it. That uh, wraps up for the Rocketeer. We are going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we are going to get into our final pulp heroes movie of the evening, and that is The Shadow from 1994. Stick around. <laughs>
5: First at theaters everywhere. Welcome back to Jungfod Schlitzie. The final Schlitzie this evening is *The Shadow*, a 1994 movie directed by Russell M- Mulcahy. Uh, you may remember him as the director of a bunch of Highlander movies, as well as the exploitation movie Razorback and Resident Evil: Extinction, among a bunch of other nonsense. Mm-hmm.
6: <laughs> um, but did you see the DP on this? Who's that DP? Stephen H. Burum, Who shot eight movies for De Palma Which explains all the split diopter Ooh, shots in this oh. he, he did body double and everything up through
5: Mission to Mars Okay, yeah, okay, okay I see, yeah, alright, I like that guy Yeah, I'm looking at his stuff now He also did Mystery Men, an underrated classic yeah, according to some. So, okay, that explains why this movie looks cool. This movie I loved as a kid. My grandma went to take me, much like uh, uh, Kevin and his grandma with Dick Tracy. Um, and I didn't know who the shadow was. I wasn't like, you know, you know. I just my grandma wanted to go. I went with her. You didn't listen to
4: a lot of old-time radio when you were a kid?
5: <laughs> None at all. None at all. Um, So we went. And i thought it was really great and um around the same time i had just read um well in my memory i had just read this a little bit before this but maybe i read it a little bit after it You, you know how memories work but around this time i had read a mars attacks book where the martians fought mongolians and so i thought mongolians were like the tightest fucking shit and I read a lot about Mongolians. I bought a book about Mongolians. I thought Genghis Khan was super fucking cool, just rolling around on horseback, uh, fucking people up, um, inventing fast food, inventing yeah. biological warfare.
6: <laughs> Love that Mongolian
5: barbecue. Oh, that barbecue is so good. He's he's a he's a king. That Genghis Khan, one of history's greatest. So. You know, the fact that that was in this movie tied in, as we'll get to, like it just I was all in my grandma. Like right after we saw the movie, my grandma took me to a bookstore and she bought me like a book about like the history of the shadow and everything. And I like the art style kind of like kept me out of it. I didn't like the old timey art style, but I still thought the shadow was like a super cool character. Um, but I think that the, the art style is what kind of left me at, at arm's length. So I didn't. That's why I kind of fell out with him. We had a falling out. Um, so I've been wanting to revisit this since then. I haven't seen it since then. But um, the plot of this movie, uh, based on the 1930s comic strip and radio show and serials and stuff, we have uh, Alec Baldwin, who plays Lamont Cranston, which is a cool, old-timey name. He is a World War One veteran who, after World War One, decides to become an opium kingpin in Tibet rather than go home. Uh, that's, I guess, strongly implied here yeah, via a quick dream sequence. Because um, this movie starts out in Tibet, where he's like a real disheveled kind of big trouble in little China character. And it's <laughs> it's j- jarring as to why that would be the case. Um <laughs> He's kidnapped by a Buddhist guy who tells him, hey, you know, your evil opium ways are fucked up. I'm going to teach you the ways of the shadow, me and my little CG knife with a face. And, um, you know, you're going to learn how to to find the evil that hides within men. And you're going to be able to use your psychic powers to become invisible and cloud the minds of men. And then you're going to go back to New York you're going to be a superhero and you're going to do good things and it's a and
6: Nuffles. terrorize elizabeth moss as well right
5: <laughs> and terrorize her uh turn her stove on when she's not looking that's very scary uh, <laughs> and so that's that's what's gonna happen that's what me a buddhist guy says so that all that comes to pass uh seven years later lamont is back in new york and he has established himself as the shadow a kind of urban legend that's taking out mobsters like Paul Sorvino and uh, kind of doing well um, amongst, you know, about town. Uh, it, when he saves somebody, as he saves um, a guy at the beginning here from Paul Sorvino, he goes, Hey, I saved your life. So now, like, you're kind of like my slave. And, like, that's all good. Like, that's like a heroic thing. <laughs> uh, and,. So what that means, I guess, is that he has these agents all over town. He saves your life. He gives you a little ring and you kind of become like, you know, a servant of his sort of like, you know, the guy in question knows a lot about he's like a scientist who studies minerals and metals. So later on, the shadow shows up and he says, hey, you know, I need you to, you know, synthesize this metal and tell me what it is kind of stuff. He also saved the life of a cabbie so that cabbie drives him around all day, stuff like that. Which is kind of a cool thing, actually. Like, to have, like, this secret network of, like, ground-level dudes who can kind of do shit for you, I think is kind of kind of cool. Like, maybe that's something that Batman kind of has taken and run with a little bit. Like, because Batman's got, you know, like, Gordon and uh, Lucius Fox and Nightwing and kind of, like, all these ground-level dudes you can kind of rely on. Um, but, in re- I mean, it's cool, like, in theory... But in reality, he is like just making people slaves, and that's kind of fucked up. But, <laughs> but whatever. So, um, anywho, so one day, uh, what's his name? Shiwan Khan, the last living descendant of Genghis Khan, comes to New York in a, a mummy's sarcophagus, and he has the plan of using uh, the nuclear bomb which has been invented by ian mckellen of lord of the rings he's going to use this to blow up new york and then somehow that will lead him to take over the world and finish what genghis khan started 700 years earlier he also has the same shadow powers as the shadow um and so we get kind of like a like a gentleman's sort of feud between these two guys which i like like it's like Shiwan. um he's not like super evil like he's like kind of cordial to the shadow he wants the shadow to join him um he's like kind of like gentlemanly sort of um he's not like a total like just shitty bad guy like i think there's like some nuance to him and i think he's kind of an interesting character in this um he's played by john lone who we last saw as the neanderthal in that ice man movie i think he's a really good actor also, The Shadow's falling in love with Penelope Ann Miller, who is a psychic, so he has no power over her. Uh, Tim Curry's a, a bad guy who uh, is kind of fun to watch. Jonathan Winters, Dayton Zone, shows up for like almost no reason. Um, so I, I guess that's the rundown of this. Um, there's a really cool, my favorite part of this movie, now watching it again, is there's a scene where like someone uses is one of those like old-timey mail shoots that used to be all over New York to send a memo and like the camera follows it like all down a skyscraper and like around buildings and underground and up and down and um, I thought that that was like super cool looking. like uh, they use a lot of like miniatures and like weird stuff and it seemed like something like that would be right out of Dark Man and this movie reminded me a lot of Dark Man. Um, But maybe that's because Darkman was probably very influenced by these actual comics. Um, Or maybe this guy saw Darkman and just wanted to kind of rip it off from time to time. But I like that shot. Uh, This also has like a very Batman Begins feel to it. Like the tying in like this kind of street level New York slash Gotham superhero to kind of like these Eastern uh, like Buddhist beliefs. And stuff like that is like very Batman begins. Um, so I don't know. I don't know, not like too much about like the super beginnings of Batman. Maybe that was always there in Batman and always there in the shadow and they kind of mirrored each other. But uh, maybe Christopher Nolan was taken from this movie or those comics. Uh, Kubiak from Parker Lewis can't lose in this for a brief second before he gets murdered. So I like to see him. Uh, there's a, a nightmare scene where. Alec Baldwin starts sticking his hands into his face and pulling his face off that I thought looked fucking crazy cool.
6: Yeah. (laughs) Legit frightening for a second there. I mean, until you realize what's happening, you're like, is he going mad and just ripping his own skin off? What's going on?
5: (laughs) Yeah, because, like, he starts out, like, just kind of, like, picking at his cheek and then, like, his fingers inside his cheek and then, like, four fingers and his whole hand and then both hands. And it's, like, it's really crazy how they do it. Like, I have no, like, I mean... I mean, it looked... I guess, I think it was practical. I don't know. It was, like, horrifying to look at. I guess it must have been practical, aside from, like, maybe some of the transitions or something that were helped digitally, maybe. But, yeah, it's yeah. such a cool fucking scene.
6: Some real Cronenberg shit that you don't expect in this movie. <laughs> Absolutely.
4: Yeah, it's a lot like that scene in uh, Poltergeist where the guy rips his face apart. Yeah.
6: Sequence.
4: Except, except it looks good. Like, the effects look good. <laughs> <laughs>
5: um, so... Let's see what else. Um, And then one thing that's weird that I kind of alluded to earlier is like in the comics, the the shadow, the way he's drawn, he has like a really big nose. I think he has it all the time, not just when he's the shadow. But I might be wrong because, like I said, it's been a million years since I've read those. But it feels like. Like if it's not the case and he has that nose all the time in the comics, like. It feels like they kind of wanted to have their cake and eat it, too, because in this, he only has a big nose when he has like the shadow outfit on and then he takes it off and he's like normal good looking alec baldwin and it's like kind of weird but they explain it um so maybe it is that way in the comics then because they say it's like part of his psychic shit that he can change his face but uh it's kind of weird like to thematically that he just has a different face sometimes and, like, there's a bit of, like, atomic bomb slapstick near the end where, like, a scientist and a dame are, like, chasing after an atomic bomb and, like, it's going downstairs and it's, like, a Benny Hill thing that, like, kind of doesn't fit with the rest of the movie. But there's, like, some kind of, like, cute humor in this um, from time to time. So it's not, like, totally out of place, I guess. But Yeah, and, um, and did you see the gams on that dame? <laughs> she did have quite, quite the gams. Um, is, that, so, is that Legs? It gams his legs for sure. All right, good. <laughs> so, I, yeah, I don't know. I, I think Alec Baldwin kind of sucks in this. Like, he's been cursed with the fact that he's like really good looking and has a very cool voice. And he it seems like he should be a leading man in Hollywood. But his talent set is that of like a funny sidekick.
7: <laughs>
5: yeah. So it's like quite the curse that he has. Uh, <laughs> and I don't think, outside of the fact that he has a really cool, deep voice, I don't think he really does a good job in this movie. Um everybody else is good though. I like Tim Curry. He's like the only guy who ever like really kind of gets a one up on on the shadow by shooting him accidentally. Um <laughs> which is cool. But yeah, I don't know. This is like an interesting movie. I kinda like it. I like elements of it. But there's something just unsatisfying about it. I don't know. I like its weirdness, I like its tone. Maybe the shadow's too powerful, maybe that's it. Cause he has so many superpowers, superpowers. Uh, I don't know. I kind of like it though. What do you guys think about the shadow?
6: Would you say that you like this more or less than you like Dick Tracy? I would say I like it more. Well, that's, I think that's a wild, uh, a wild take. Um, (laughs) yeah, you, you know, like, um, like the Rocketeer, I, um, you know, I saw this as a kid, but didn't remember anything about it. Um, Which is surprising, because I actually did listen to a lot of radio dramas as a kid um, around this time. And and I was racking my brain trying to figure out, would it have been just before this movie came out or just after this movie came out? But at some point in junior high school, I had an English teacher who um, really loved radio dramas. And and when he didn't want to teach a lesson, he would just put on an episode of, you know suspense or you know the shadow or lights out or or any of these um uh either horror or kind of pulpy action radio dramas and he would kind of play that off as like yeah you guys are learning about english these radio broadcasts are in that language i I guess was his justification but i liked him you know because you know maybe because the alternative was like reading shakespeare or whatever um i was always charmed by these um and so, you know, I, I remember kind of vaguely seeing this and, um, you know, just, again, not really remembering much about it. Um, but going back into it this week for the show, I was definitely excited because, um, you know, besides the people that you mentioned, there's a lot of good casting going on with this movie. Um, the very first two people that you see in this, um, in the Tibetan sequence, are James Hong and Al Leong. Uh, Two, you know, classic Chinese-American character actors who I love. Um, You also got Peter Boyle in this, playing a taxi cab driver, which is fun. Uh, Jonathan Winters as the police commissioner. He's great. Uh, You even got Max Wright, the troubled dad from ALF. He shows up (laughs) for a bit in this. And, And other character actor guys like Larry Hankin, Robert Trebor. Uh, you got Patrick Fishler, the uh, detective guy from uh, Mulholland Drive, you know, from the Winkie's Diner scene. Uh, he's the guy that jumps off the Empire State Building in this. Spoiler, I guess, but uh, oh, yeah. that's a cool scene. Um, I was really surprised to see Tim Curry and Ian McKellen in this because they just kind of pop in a little bit un, you know, unexpectedly, like in the middle of the movie and um, have these kind of disjointed little scenes uh, here and there. But Tim Curry's always a treat, you know. Uh, there's a, a moment in this where Tim Curry tells a woman that her dress has a clever neckline, is what he says. And <laughs> I really like that line, and I feel like I, I might try that myself someday. Um, and speaking of, the, you know, the, the costumes are pretty cool in this. You know, there's lots of, you know, sharply tailored suits and stuff like this for the men and, and cool-looking dresses for the ladies. Um, I will disagree with you though, Bowman. I, I thought the guy who played Genghis Khan's great grandkid or or whatever that is, um, I didn't I didn't think I did not think he was great as a villain. Unfortunately, I, you know he I thought was a, a little bit lifeless and uh, that is maybe the one thing I would change about this if I could. I, I mean there are a number of things I would change, but if I could only pick one, it would probably be like get a more charismatic uh, guy in that role. I mean even like. Uh, A Timothy Dalton in yellow face. Honestly, I might take (laughs) over this guy who I thought was just kind of dull, which is a bummer. It's not a very
5: it's not a very physically demanding role. Like he doesn't do like a lot of, you know, fighting or anything like that. So, I mean, they could have just gone with James Hong, put him in a bigger role.
6: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Him or Al Leong or, or, you know, there's a number of guys, you know, who I think might have worked a little bit better. But you know, it is, I guess, what it is. Um, similar to Dick Tracy, ultimately, like, I think the most interesting things about this are, like, the stylistic elements. Uh, I thought the musical score from Jerry Goldsmith was actually pretty good. Um, you know, it's he's using a full orchestra, and it's got, like, a real big sound to it. Um, and visually, you know, they're doing some stuff that is, like, a little bit, little bit akin to Dick Tracy. You know, there's, like, a slight surrealness to the way that things are staged like early on there's that scene with the gangsters on the bridge giving the guy the the concrete boot treatment and they're using this like pretty obvious matte painting backdrop for the scene where it's like the new york city skyline and you can tell it's like uh just a painting but i i kind of like it you know it's it's evocative of those old movies from the 1930s where you would see kind of obvious matte paintings but you're still charmed by it you know and um, I like that the the part in this where they're doing that wild zoom through the city. I, I think you mentioned it, where the camera is kind of g- going down the buildings and stuff like that. Which I'm guessing, I'm guessing those were practical models. I, I don't think CG would have been good enough in 1994 for them to have CG'd all that camera flying around the city stuff. But but maybe it is. I I don't know. But uh, assuming it's practical models, it, it looked pretty cool. Um, Alec Baldwin's makeup is bizarre. Like you mentioned, uh, I don't know why they didn't just cast Billy Baldwin. If they wanted somebody who looked like a slightly misshapen version of Alec to be in this, you know, you could (laughs) have just done that. Um, and it's, you know, especially confusing because like you said, you're dealing with like one of the most handsome guys on the planet, especially, uh, at this time, and then, you know, you just throw all this weird rubbery makeup on him for a third of the movie, or, or I guess not even that. Because uh, it is kind of brief, you know, the number of times uh, that you do see him in that makeup. Uh, but despite all that, I, I actually kind of liked Alec Baldwin in this. You know, I, I think he plays the role with a kind of like a slight sense of camp that I thought was appropriate for the movie. And um mm-hmm there were things about this I I loved. I I love that Llama brand cigarette uh, billboard that's puffing out smoke. um, Mm -hmm. And they show it once in like a wide shot earlier on. And I thought like, well, that's a really cool bit of background detail that I'm probably not gonna see again, but it keeps coming back again and again and almost becomes like a central part of the movie, this this dumb billboard. But I think it's so cool that uh, honestly, I didn't mind um yeah it's not a perfect movie it definitely like jumps around uh in the narrative a lot to the point where i feel like maybe there was like a different cut of this that maybe there's a work print out there somewhere that i could get my hands on that would be um you know somehow more coherent but i you know i i also didn't hate this i i wish it was weirder you know i wish it was as weird as like the dick tracy movies and it's it's not that weird but in terms of, like, invisible person media that I've seen in the past uh, month or so, I did like this more than the, the Liz Moss uh, 2020 Invisible Men. So uh, it's got that going for it. Oh, and also uh, tying this back to Dick Tracy, the, uh, I'm not sure if you noticed, the music supervisor for this is a guy named Jellybean Benetz, who was Madonna's romantic partner and produced her early singles like Holiday. So shout out to Jelly Bean Bennettes
4: Yeah, uh, this is the only one of the three that I had not seen prior to the show. Um, I remember when it came out, and for whatever reason, I just didn't get around to seeing this. I did play the pinball machine quite a bit. <laughs> out of the three movies, this is the only one to get a pinball machine. Um, so that was fun. But yeah, ne- for whatever reason, I never got around to watching The Shadow. And I remember it getting kind of critically panned when it came out, and... You know, I didn't have a lot of investment into the Shadow character itself. I I was aware of the radio series, um, but that's about as far as I went with the Shadow. So I didn't really know a whole lot about this going in. And so not having any nostalgia for this probably didn't help it. Uh, But also there's a lot of stuff in this that doesn't help it either. I totally agree with Parker. I think Alec Baldwin sucks in this. Um, I don't know. He's just not right for this role. I mean, I get why he was cast like. Sean mentioned he is that kind of handsome square jawed leading man that you would think would be you know kind of perfect for a role like this kind of a no nonsense fast talking man's man kind of guy but I don't know there's just something about his performance that's just it doesn't work for this for the you know for me um, you know he's basically just playing the same character he played in Glen Gary Glen Ross I just kept expecting him to tell you know people that coffee was for closers and you know, you're a good father, fuck you, go home, play with your kids, I'm here to be the shadow. I don't know, just, <laughs> he's still got that, he's still got that, like, you know, New England accent a little bit in this, and I, it just, uh, he, he bugs me. Like, he he's he he could can be great in things, and like, he was even great in stuff around this time, but I think he's much more settled into his, his persona now, and things like 30 Rock, and where he's much better, but Back then, I don't know. He was just kind of trying to be all over the place as a leading man. And I think there was a lot of swings and misses. And I think this kind of falls into the miss category. Um, Penelope Ann Miller, another actress that I think is kind of hit and miss. You know, I love her in comedic roles like in, in Venture, Adventures and Babysitting as the friend stranded at the bus station and, you know, as Pee Wee Herman's, um, you know, love interest and big top Pee Wee. She's cool. But as this kind of leading lady, you know, this 1930s damsel in distress that shares the telekinetic connection with the, the shadow. I don't know. I don't think she works very well. And she again, she's just kind of hamming it up and overacting. Both Baldwin and Penelope Ann Miller feel like because the I, I think they feel like because it is a pulpy kind of radio drama from this time that they have to kind of ham it up. And, and I don't know. It just ends up not working for me. Um, and then, yeah, again, I agree with Sean. I think the villain in this isn't very engaging or good. Tim Curry, who almost always is excellent, is just kind of nothing in this. Peter Boyle, again, another Peter Boyle, Ian McKellen, Jonathan Winters. All great guys. Love to see him on the screen, but they don't really get a lot to do in this. Um, I think the CGI hampers a lot of the cool style of this. Again, you know, like all of these movies, they have cool cars, cool backdrops, cool costuming, but I think the thing that sets this one apart is it has shitty CGI. And I think that shitty CGI kind of uh, leaves a a nice shit stain on mm-hmm. what could be some good uh, visual effects and aesthetics in this.
6: Yeah, like um, that, that dumb flying knife.
4: Yeah, that's awful. Mm-hmm. I hate that knife. Yeah, so, I mean, this isn't terrible. You know, I don't think this is... Um, I don't know I don't think it's like you know total garbage but at the same time I don't think I'll ever have to watch this again he <laughs> yeah. doesn't hold
6: a candle to Dick Tracy right
4: no it's it's definitely the the least favorite of these three by a, by a long shot um but still it's okay but I, I I like I said I can't see any scenario where I'm like let's throw on the shadow I'd love to watch that again I think one and done is is good for me on on the shadow.
5: Well, that makes sense. Uh, would you say that you guys are more or less inclined to read up on Mongolian history now, though?
4: Absolutely. Yeah. Because I feel like this probably got a lot of uh, a lot of Mongolian history wrong.
5: Oh, you think so? <laughs> you don't think that Mongolians were just taking to the streets of New York in the thirties and. Uh, robbing banks and whatever's going on in this.
6: Yeah, but that's why they built that big wall around Manhattan.
4: <laughs> putting an entire city under mind control so they can't see a giant building in the middle of the city. What a stupid plot.
6: <laughs> Even worse than the car crashing on the way to the uh, Amityville house.
5: Yeah. <laughs> well, that wraps it up for the shadow. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we are going to know what evil lurks in the hearts of men. So stick around. That wraps it up for Junk Fudge. Let's see. Thank you guys for joining us and watching these 30s pulp heroes next week. We will be back with Patreon movies, movies picked by our Patreons. We will be talking about Hardcore Logo from 1996, picked by Randy. Breakdown from 1997, picked by Brendan. Altered States from 1980, picked by Zach. That's going to be a hot one. Those three, uh, three intense movies. In the meantime, leave us a voicemail if you like. Call in, let us know how you're doing. Uh have you seen the Eternals? Do you know? Do you know much about Mongolians? Let us know. At 347-746 Junk. That is 347-746-5865. Uh, you can also find us on Patreon, the aforementioned Patreon, at patreon.com slash junk for dinner. For, uh, for a few dollars, you can start picking our movies. For a few less dollars, you can get like 50 or so very banger-ass bonus episodes. And for a little bit less than that, you can get in on our annual randomizer. Listen to my much more sporadic than originally planned to be Sliders bonus podcast. Uh, there's a lot of stuff going on over there. Find us in the Discord where we've all been chatting and getting together and having goof ups uh, The link is on our Facebook. I don't know how else to post to, to let people know. Discord is weird like that. But it's on Facebook somewhere. Uh, we'll post it again for people who missed it, probably. Uh, but that's been a lot of fun. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I guess that's everything. Email us, at gmail.com if you want. That would be fun. Uh, so until next week. This is Parker for Kevin and Sean saying thanks for having fun.